Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And uh, this episode is actually one that I've already recorded, but for some reason, Sean could not find the footage and I think it's lost in the abyss that is, I don't know formatting a disc or not it's not formatting a disc it's formatting a card so like if you guys don't know there's these things called sd cards that you put into cameras and into recording devices and when you format them you delete all of the content that was already on the card and our best guess is that he thought he had dumped it but he hadn't and they formatted the card and so it's as if this podcast never existed so we're here we're doing it round two the funny thing about it is because i don't like prepare many notes for this, unless there's like a thing that I'm learning along with you. Like I had to look up something or call a colleague or something like that. So it's a different, I say it differently every time. So here we go. Round two. And let's get into this first question because the questions are really great as always, as per usual. And the first question is, Katie, how do therapists feel when their clients talk about something really traumatic? I mean, therapists are people too, and really terrible things happening to other people accounted to them must have a blow. I'm just curious, how do they deal with it? This is a great question. And it, in all honesty, having boundaries around your real life and your therapist's life, and I know that like even saying real life, you're like, well, it is real life. No, but around my personal life and my career life is very important when it comes to being a therapist. And I believe it allows us to have long careers and not get burnt out. We have to be able to leave work at work. And so not that we're immune to, to feeling the weight of a traumatic event, but we do have to keep things separate so that we can continue to keep doing that over and over and over. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I, as I'm trying to contain and hold things for my client, I'm also doing it for myself. And then I'm taking notes on it and we're setting goals and we're doing check-ins or whatever. And I kind of, you know, put it in the box, button it up and put it away until we bring it back out the next week. And so that's kind of something that I don't personally struggle with that much, but I will be honest. So there's a couple of examples. So the first thing is that I have had patients cry telling me a really traumatic event and I get teary with them because as a therapist, I'm really empathic, right? I can feel for people and, and it sucks when you have to hear someone recounting a very horrible situation or a really abusive thing that happened to them. It can be hard to not be affected. And usually when that happens, I just, I call it out. I address it. I say, 
I want you to know I hear you and I understand you. I'm just getting emotional because I'm seeing you get emotional. And this is a really tricky thing to talk about. I just address it because it's important for them to know that I'm there with them and I understand it, but I'm not losing my cool. Because sometimes I have heard from other colleagues of mine that by getting emotional in session with a patient, it can throw them off and make them uncomfortable. And that's the last thing we want to do. And so we do our best to not let our emotions run a session for it to be about you, not about me, obviously. Um, but I have had one of my closer friends used to work at this uh, domestic violence safe house, I guess, for lack of a better term. I forget what they called it. But anyway, it was a safe place for mothers and children who were in abusive situations with a partner or spouse to come and to get therapy, group therapy, and to have a safe place to live, essentially, until they could find better housing or get a restraining order or any of the number of things you have to do when domestic violence is happening. You're you know, trying to get out of that cycle. And she told me on multiple occasions, she would have patients share, you know, scary stories or kids share scary stories with her about what had happened and the abuse that they had witnessed or been, you know, had had happened to them. And she would cry and she's like, I can't hold it together. It's it's just so devastating. And in a lot of cases in, in her experience, that was actually really helpful for her patients. She said that when it came to domestic violence, a lot of people felt like they were like, over dramatizing it or making it into something that it wasn't and to have someone respond or react in an emotional way validated how they felt and what they were experiencing and in a way it was healing in and of itself and so that's really how we deal with it. I also am always in and out of my own therapy. And that's a place that I can go to kind of vent what I'm feeling or the weight of certain things that I feel. And also, I mean, I've been a part of what we call like a, a journal group, even though it has nothing to do with journaling. I don't know why we call it that. It's really like a supervision group of colleagues where we share difficult cases, difficult situations, and try to get some insight from each other because there's psychiatrists part of our group. So I'll say, hey, I had a patient whose psychiatrist changed him from this medication to this medication. And I can't get a hold of them because not all psychiatrists return therapist phone calls and I find it really annoying. Anyway, and I'll ask them about it. They're like, oh, they probably did it for this and ask this question and check in with your patient about these side effects. And so I can follow up a little bit. It gives me a little bit of insight. It's really helpful. I say all of that just to tell you that as a therapist, I have a lot of different resources and support systems, whether it's <clears throat> other friends of mine that are social workers, psychologists or therapists, <clears throat> excuse me, or having those journal groups, having my own therapy. There's a lot of places that I can go to safely talk about things that are bothering me in a confidential way. Because if you didn't know, and if you're worried, I want you to know that you, but sharing stuff with a therapist stops there. There's there's confidentiality and you as the patient hold the confidence, like meaning that you have to give us the authorization, you have to sign what's called a release, release of authorization to allow us to talk to anybody else outside of what I'm talking about. Like my own therapy is a confidential situation, right? I hold the confidence. That's a safe place. The When I'm speaking with other professionals and other clinicians for supervision, that's another little way that we can get more support and get more insight um, along the way. Also, just so everybody knows, whenever you're talking about a situation with other colleagues, I always change names, identifying characteristics just to keep everything safe so that even not that it would, but just gives that other layer of care and other layer of confidentiality. But anyways, all that in mind, we have a lot of ways to process things. And I truly believe that I was like, in some way gifted with the ability to have really 
really firm and clear boundaries between work Katie and like regular life Katie, because I rarely bring my therapy work and issues that I'm having with my patients home with me. The only time it's ever kind of crossed over is when I have a patient who's really struggling, maybe they're actively suicidal or trying to get them into like an eating disorder treatment center and it's taking a while and they're really stressed out and we're doing check-ins. That kind of erodes that boundary a little bit, but it's only for this short period of time, right? It's like short-lived and then we get out of it and back into our regular situation. So yeah, I mean, we're people too. It can be hard to hear. There are times when you tear up. I had a patient, I wrote about this in my um in my second book that will come out next year about like one of my first patients ever was a, was a little girl and she was eight or nine. And I found out that her, her mom was in an abusive relationship. And although my patient wasn't being abused herself, she was witnessing a lot of abuse. And so as per, you know, my legal, I'm legally, I'm a legal, legally mandated reporter, meaning I have to report if I think there's some kind of abuse happening, like child abuse, because witnessing abuse is just as dangerous to a child. And so I had to call CPS and file a report and tell them what I knew and all this stuff. And then I never got to see that patient again. Her mom never brought her back. And that was really devastating and hard for me to kind of process through. But I had my supervisor at the time, I was still gaining my hours towards my licensure. And he was very helpful in that process. And he helped me understand, even though I thought it sucked that I had to do what I had to do. You know, I understood why. And anyway, so therapists have a lot of support and a lot of ways that we can vent what's going on and get insight and support when needed. But we're still human. And sometimes it's really hard. And it it can be hard, but we don't want our feelings or our interpretation to affect your treatment. So it's something that we have to deal with kind of on our own. I know that was a long winded answer, but I hope that kind of gives you insight into how we keep doing what we do because it can be overwhelming. And if you're out there and you're thinking, oh, I want to be a therapist because I really, I feel for other people, but we already have trouble uh, having people tell us bad things that's happened and not feel burdened by it. If we find ourselves like carrying that burden throughout our life every day, you know, therapy might not be for you. It it is something that I believe we can get better at. But for most of my, my friends and colleagues, it's something that we're just, we don't know how we do it. We just do it. It's like, we've always had boundaries around work and and life. And if you struggle with those things, it might not be the best career path for you because it can, the weight can get heavy. And I've had tons of friends over the years stop seeing patients altogether because the bird, like the weight was too heavy and it was too much to carry. And so they just had to, had to stop. And so I don't want, um, I don't want any of you to spend all that time gaining those hours, getting your license and stuff only to learn that like it's too much. So just be aware of that. Okay. Question number two says, hi, Katie, a friend of mine received a phone call from the school psychologist because her 10 year old daughter had used her school computer to Google how to commit suicide. My friend recently had a family member jump out of a window and her daughter said she was curious about that family member's intentions. How should my friend handle this situation? And what is the best way to talk about suicide to children? I get questions like this all the time. And Okay, so it's 10 years old. The thing about children that I find is unlike adults, they don't have any preconceived notions or judgments about a situation. And I want to also just demystify or I guess, clear up the misconception that by talking about suicide, we'll make someone think about suicide because that is not the case. I know a lot of people throughout the years have felt like, oh, I can't ask that friend or family member if they're suicidal because then they're going to think about it and then they're going to do it and I'm going to be the one that caused it. 
That's not how it works, you guys. That's not how suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideations or even attempts even start. Actually asking someone about it gives them an opportunity to share and can give them a little glimmer of hope and honestly make them feel better. Give them a place to talk about what they're feeling instead of feeling like they're completely alone. Because we all know if we've struggled with any kind of suicidal thoughts, it comes out of a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Like nobody understands, nobody can support me. You know, it's just kind of like we spiral into this pit of despair and having someone shine a light in there and be like, hey, hey, are you in there? How are you doing? I'm just checking in because I care about you. That can totally change us for the better and help us feel like things could get could improve and we could feel hopeful for the future. So I just want to throw that out there because a lot of people assume that by bringing it up, we're going to make someone think that way. That's not how it works. But when it comes to children, clearly this child is very curious and no one's talking about it. And the thing that we need to do when it comes to talking about children about any mental health issue is we need to openly discuss it, put it into a story, explain it in a real way. We don't have to sugarcoat things with kids. They already know something's going on. Your 10-year-old daughter, her, she obviously thought that they were attempting suicide. And she was curious that this is, she was checking her facts, I would assume. She's looking, how how do you do this? Because I think that's what happened. And if it says they could jump out a window, then I'll know, right? She's trying to put the story together because you gave her no information. My guess is that she probably asked or has sensed that it's like, hush, hush, nobody talks about it. And we don't want our children to feel like there are certain issues or situations that they can't ask about or that cannot be talked about. We want them to feel free to come to us and ask questions. And so what we can do is we can tell her because it was a, mm, I guess had a family member jump out of the window. So you can say, let's say it was aunt, aunt Lucy. So we could say to our daughter, uh, let's say her name is Sally. So, you know, um, Sally, I know that Aunt Lucy, uh, you know how she jumped out of that window and she hurt herself. I know that that's really scary. That was scary, right? You know, how are you feeling about it? And I want you to know that, you know, your aunt was just, she was having a tough time and she didn't see a way out. And she thought that this, if that's the case, I don't know, but you just be honest about what happened. She thought that that was the best thing for her to just not be on this earth anymore. And she thought that death was better than what was happening. And we know that that's not true, right? We know that when we feel hopeless and helpless, we really just need to talk about it. I want you to know you can always come to me if you're having a tough time or if you have questions, okay? So we're just opening a dialogue. I know people are like, you can't say that to a child. Then they're going to think such and such or do that. Children don't have judgments. They need a story. They need the truth or they're going to go on to Google and try to figure out what the fuck is going on because no one's telling them about it. And the thing about kids, too, that I want you to hear is that if we don't give them a full story, if we're not honest with them and open in a way where they can ask questions, because then this 10 year old girl might have a question. She's like, well, mom. But didn't didn't anybody ask her how she was doing? Or how come she didn't know that I cared about her or that you cared about her? Children will have questions. It's okay to answer to say, you know, sometimes when we're feeling really low, we forget that. Or I don't know, I hadn't talked to her in a while. And that worries me too. Or I'm that was scary for me too. It's okay to say that as well. We need to give children this story and answer their questions. Because if we don't give them those answers to their questions, they go searching on Google like she's doing, but more like more commonly, children assume they did something. Like I can't tell you how many of my patients who are adults now will tell me that their mother was depressed when they were growing up and they assumed it was something they had done to make mom unhappy. That's very common because 
when children don't have a full story and people are like, oh, no, no, nothing's wrong. And we know something's wrong. I think we can all raise our hands and say, we knew when something was wrong in our family and our parents told us just to go back in our room and nothing's wrong. We knew that's why we came out asking questions. And so if we don't have an answer to those questions, we assume it's something that we did because when we're putting a story together, all the only information that we actually have because no one's telling us is what we know and what we have done. And so that's all that we can add to that story. So instead of having the information that like Aunt Lucy was having a really tough time, and I don't even know, you could say like, I'm just making this whole story up. But let's say Aunt Lucy just gone through a rough divorce. So you'd be like, remember when Lucy used to be married to Bob and, and you know, it wasn't a good marriage and they, they broke up and got divorced. That was really hard on her. So you can talk about that and have that story and explain it so that children don't you know, they can then make sense of it versus thinking, you know, last time I saw Aunt Lucy, she asked me to help her in the kitchen and I didn't. And that's why, because children will try to make sense of it that way. I know I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just saying that I find too often we tell children nothing is wrong when something's wrong and they know it. And that leads to these false beliefs and these false stories so that they can try to make sense of what they know. Then, you know, mental illness shouldn't be something we're afraid to talk about. The more language we put to it, then the more likely it will be if our child is going through a tough time, they're going to come to us and say, mom, I've been feeling kind of down, kind of like depressed, like we talked about before. They'll have language. They'll be able to communicate. They'll be able to reach out. All of this is really important. And I think the, the, the line, you know, or omitting or kind of like, I don't even know what the word is. I guess just like making light of or trying to talk down something, make it not as big of a deal, right? We like minimize what took place. All of those behaviors end up making our children think that that they're crazy, that they made it up, or they'll try to search out their answers elsewhere or blame it on themselves. We don't really leave them a good outlet, a good way to process through what happened. We aren't the only ones going through things. Our children are too. And they are way more aware than than we often give them credit for. And that's why your 10-year-old daughter or this, um, you know, your a friend of hers or 10-year-old daughter is Googling this because she's figured out that that's probably what it is. And she's trying to figure out if her detective skills have proven to be correct. And so I would just encourage all you, I know I'm kind of like scattered on this, but the true way to talk to children is to be honest, to give them the facts and leave it open to conversation and questions. And also letting them know how you feel and that it's okay to feel that way. So we want to validate that to be like, you know, I've been, I was very sad. Let's say this family member did um, take their own life. I'm sad that Aunt Lucy is gone and I'm going to miss her a lot. And so I'm having a tough time dealing with it too. It's okay to say that. I have a lot of questions too. Or if they ask a question you don't have an answer to, it's okay to tell a child, you know, I don't really know. My best guess is this, but we don't really have that information because she didn't tell anybody. Th- those are things that are okay. And I think the sooner we start having real conversations with our children, obviously age is an issue. Developmentally, you know, a five-year-old is not the same as a 10-year-old. We can't tell them the same story, but we should have some kind of age-appropriate conversation with our children so that they don't think they did anything wrong. If we're depressed, it's important we tell our children, you know, I've been feeling really sad and depressed lately. It's nothing you've done. It's just how I've been feeling, and I'm not even sure why. And that's okay, too. But we need them to know it's not them. And having those conversations, being open to 
communications about mental illness and mental health issues is really important. And I believe it will prevent the next generation from having all these false stories, and these false beliefs about who they are, or what they cause they you know, or what they're worth or being perfect will make mommy feel better. We don't want any of that stuff to happen anymore. We want children to know that parents are human too. We all have tough times and it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to check our facts and to have real conversations so that we can get as much of the stories we can and come to understand what really took place versus trying to make it up out of nothing. And so, yeah, that's really my advice. And I hope that that's helpful. I know it's kind of scattered, but we have to stop sugarcoating things and, and essentially lying to our children because they, they understand and know more than we realize like I said, we all could think back to being like 10, 12 year old you. And when your parents fighting, like hiding in the back, talking with your sibling, if you have one and being like, they're fighting again. You know, we all recognize that and parents think they're like pulling the wool over their child's eyes, but they're not. Children just make up these different stories to go along with it because they don't have all the information. And so we need to give them the helpful information so that they can process all they're feeling as well. And that also gives them an opportunity to talk about their feelings, which the sooner we start doing that, the better we'll all feel. I think we can agree, right? Okay. Moving on. Question number three says, Hey, Katie, could you explain a bit more about the science behind false memories? Interesting. I do not know if my abuse was made up because it became a problem in my life only a few years ago when I started learning about psychology in college and I started remembering stuff from a long time ago. But could that memory not be true? Is it possible to have made up an entire memory? Could past abuses actually be delusions? Thank you so much. There's a lot to dig up and to talk about when it comes to false memories. And I actually have a video about repressed memories, which are different, but very similar. Okay. So the science behind false memories, usually there is some kind of tie to, uh, something that influenced us. Okay. That could be, and I know we've all kind of heard of these stories, like a therapist that planted memories in a patient's brain. They talk about it like that, but it's really like coercing them into believing something happened that didn't. That's super, super terrible and completely unethical and should be illegal. And I'm sorry that anybody ever had to go through that. It's those therapists license should be taken away. So <clears throat> that's one way that it can happen is influence through like, let's say you came to me because you were having anxiety. And I was like, asking you a bunch of questions about, you know, your dad, and did your dad ever hit you? And you're like, well, yeah, he spanked me once. Well, that's abuse. And have there been other times and, and, you know, and trying to just coerce you. And yeah, it sounds like he must have done this before to you this way. I think he might have also sexually abused you. Have you ever been uncomfortable going to see your gynecologist? You could make up all these things and like plant beliefs in a patient's head and make them think that those memories exist where they really don't. So that's one way. Another is sometimes we can read enough about something that we start to believe that that could be something that we have also experienced and we can kind of make up our own stories. I don't find that to be as common. In my experience, false memories are things that happen when we've been coerced by a bad professional or a way that we are trying to make sense of something else that happened, meaning we didn't have all the information yet. We're not really sure why we were hypervigilant. We think it's a trauma. But the truth about that is for most of my patients, they don't really have full memories. They have like snippets and they just can't put it together. And that's really frustrating. So I don't really believe false memories are as common as they're making it sound. 
I think repressed memories, memories are very common. And that sounds like what's happening with you. I would talk to a, a therapist, see a licensed professional, because what happens is when we start learning about things in the same way, we can be triggered, right? If we have suffered from a trauma in our past and we have PTSD, but maybe we don't even know because we've just stuffed the memory down so deeply so that we could keep going and survive. It's a very, it's a, it's a way that our brain helps us continue, right? It's adaptive. It, it helps us move past something and survive it. And so it's, it really makes sense as to why our brain does this. However, because it could be so repressed that we like haven't thought about it in years and kind of forget that it even happened completely, then we go to a psychology course in college and they talk about a certain situation that is so close to what happened to us that our brain's like, hey, hey, remember me? You tried to stuff me deep down in here, but I'm still in here. You haven't dealt with what happened or processed me. I'm like, I know I've talked a lot about memories being uh, like marbles and Inside Out, that movie Inside Out, if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend. But they form these daily memories into these marbles and roll them away into long term memory. And I've talked a lot about how trauma memories are like when the marbles being formed, it's like it slips out of their hands and it crashes on that control center floor. And repressed memories, it's like it's crashed and it's like splinters are everywhere. It's completely shattered. And we like swept it off to the side so that we don't run into it all the time. But then when we do something like watching a certain movie, learning about something in school, all of a sudden we step on a splinter and we're like, shit. And those memories are like, and they come right back up. And so false memories are not as common, I believe, as people think. Repressed memories are very common, especially when it comes to trauma, because how can we survive if, you know, if all those symptoms of PTSD are just super, super prevalent? Oftentimes we can feel like we can't. And I think the best way to figure this all out is to talk to a therapist and start being curious. So journaling about the experience that you you're recalling right now that you believe happened to you journaling about it, and then doing some some fact checking. So one of the best ways we can check in on these repressed memories, and again, I talk about this in my video on my main channel, just Katie Morton repressed memories, it'll come up. But it can be really helpful to, along with journaling through as much detail as possible, because if you remember all of this stuff, you know, it's, it's hard, it's easier for you to like, oh, I remember I was wearing these corduroys, or I was in this place with shag carpet, or whatever it is, you'll remember those details. And I don't, it can help you piece the story together more clearly, proving to yourself that it's a real memory, right? And then we need to go to someone that we knew at that time, a sibling, a parent, a friend, a family member of some sort, and ask them about it. Hey, do you remember if, I don't know, if that our uncle's old house in the basement, did it have shag carpet? I I'm, I'm, have this weird memory that bubbled up and I'm just trying to remember, was that his house or someone else's? They might be able to answer that for you. Did we ever play mousetrap at that? You know, you could ask them all sorts of questions to see if that's really true. And that's a great way to, again, validate or invalidate this memory to help you recognize whether it is a false memory or if it really happened. And again, a delusion, I don't believe this could be a delusion because the real truth about delusions are their firmly held beliefs. And no matter what we talk about or know what, no matter what we learn or people tell us, we will not, we are like firm in it. You cannot change my mind. When it comes to this, we just have to be curious. We have to be open to it. We have to explore what we do remember and what we don't, fact check where we can, and process it through with a good therapist who listens to us and does not lead us. A therapist should not ask you leading questions like, 
So it sounds like abuse happened to you. What's the first experience where you remember where this person hit you when you haven't told them that they did? They should ask you more about when did these symptoms start and and tell me what you remember from that memory. Okay, let's go back a little bit farther. And how about you try to tell me about that day? They just guide you simply with basic open-ended questions where you get to fill in the blanks and figure out what it was that you really remember and if it was a true memory or not. That's the kind of th- like professional we want to find. And so that's really my, those are my thoughts about it. Past abuses can be false memories. I don't believe they can be delusions. Um, I think that's just kind of a different thing. And I don't, I just don't think false memories are as common as people think, except for the fact that some people can influence us. And if we have had a shitty therapist who tries to tell us something happened and we aren't sure if it did, we should challenge that and see somebody else because that's really the the main time I've found false memories to be happening a lot. And you can disagree in the comments. I'd love to hear from you if you have had false memories about uh, traumas or things that have happened and, and where that came from, because I'd love to learn more. But in my experience, it's more repressed memories and finding, you know, the right support to guide you through as you as you figure it out, because it can take time for us to uncover things that we've stuffed so deep for so many years. Okay, question number four says, Hey, Katie, hope you're doing great. I am it is it's a Saturday. I'm recording this song. I usually don't work on the weekends. But since Sean lost the footage, here we are. And but it's okay. I don't mind. It's kind of fun, especially since I've answered these before. I'm like, oh, yeah, I also wanted to say this. So it's kind of like you're getting a more complete answer. Um, it says, can you talk about hiding things that we want to talk about, but are ashamed or scared of? <clears throat> I've been meaning to talk about more of my sexuality, being gay, and traumas I've survived, sexual assault, to my mom and to other people I really care about and that really care about me, but I haven't been able to. I'm afraid of losing people I love or them thinking or treating me differently. So there's a lot to unpack here. And the first part, just because you said your sexuality first and being gay, I, I want everyone to know out there that you don't ever have to come out if you don't want to. I know people talk about it now like it's like just a, a rite of passage, like something that has to be done. And I just don't subscribe to that. I think that it's something you can do if you want. And I support anyone's decision to do it or not do it. And the first thing is safety. If you live at home with people who you're afraid might be homophobic or might kick you out or do something crazy, you never know. Or if you're afraid of coming out to someone at school and they might spread that rumor and then you could be bullied or harmed in some way, safety first. I know that sucks and we should all be free to be who we are, but we all live in different parts of the world with different people around us and not everyone, unfortunately, is supportive. And so I just want you all to consider your safety first to make sure that you still have a place to live, that you're still going to be okay, and that you won't be put in any in harm's way at all. Okay. Just want to throw that out there. And I have a video that I did with my one of my close friends, Rocio, about coming out. And you can check that out. You can probably I would assume it's just Katie Morton coming out and that the video with her will come up and she talks about it. And I think that, you know, that's hopefully a really helpful and healing video. So there's that component. And then when it comes to the sexual assault, and even the being gay, when we're co- then I'm going to now I'm going to get into how we communicate. Okay, so because there are ways to ha- have conversations to set ourselves up for success of having co- difficult conversations in a productive way. Okay, so the first is and many of you have heard me talk about this over and over, but it's important that we all hear it, you know, sometimes we need to hear it multiple times. So the first is to figure out what it is we want to tell them. We can't just go in half cocked into a conversation and just start rambling because that's when we get off topic. That's when we can 
say something that maybe we don't even really mean or overwhelm them with information because this should only be the first of many conversations, okay? So in that first conversation, what do you feel like they really need to hear? And I believe this being gay conversation should be a separate conversation from talking about your traumas and your your sexual assault because they are different and I want them to have their own time. And uh, we want to be able to offer them, you know, the people that we're telling our friends and family, I want to be able to offer them the time they might need to digest and understand and come back with questions, right? So we don't want to bombard them with too much information. But either way, we need to figure out what it is we need them to know. Like when it comes to the sexual assault thing, it might just be that we want them to know that this happened and that we're working on it. And then I always, I always tell people when you're telling parents and even close friends, honestly, close loved ones, they want to know how to help. So make sure your last thing on there, make it's like, three to five bullet points of things you want them to know. And that last bullet point, that fifth bullet point should be something that they can do to help. So that might just be, I just want to tell you so that you can check in on me about this because I'm working on it and it's hard and it would be nice to, you know, have that contact and communication with someone other than my therapist. Okay. Or we could be asking them, Hey, could you take me to my therapy appointments? Or could you in some way help me pay for therapy or whatever it is, we need to be able to ask them or just checking in on me, you know, know what it is you need from them and ask for it because they're going to want to know that. Cool. And always ending with that, I find is really helpful. Keeping these bullet points very simple and to the point. I don't want any verbal diarrhea happening here. I'm just as guilty of doing that people as anybody else. But let's say when it comes to the sexual assault, we say, you know, I've been going through a really hard time lately. Maybe you've noticed that's bullet point one. Bullet point number two is, you know, and so I've gotten into therapy because I didn't tell you, but back in 2017, I was sexually assaulted. Okay. Number three, what happened? So it was by a person that I I trusted and it was just really throwing me for a loop. And I, you know, I'm struggling with PTSD as a result to what my therapist has told me, which makes me kind of irritable and depressed. Okay. So what I'm needing for you, I just wanted to tell you so that you could check in on me about this. And I also just wanted you to know what I'm going through. So, so that I had someone else to talk to. Boom. That's the conversation. I know that seems really short and I know you're like, there's so much more to tell. This is the first of many conversations. Don't feel like you have to get it all out at once. That's when we become overwhelmed ourselves. Blank out. I can't tell you how many of my patients have been like, I don't even remember what I said. I just started talking. I didn't stop. And my mom started crying and it was all over. That's not what we want. We want to keep it short and sweet and to the point, ask them for what we need and then tell, then wait for them to talk. They can have questions, know that, and it's okay to say, you know, and that's all I'm really comfortable sharing right now, but I'm open to talking about this later. I just wanted to at least let you know that could be how we end it too. Maybe that's the the ask is that we keep talking about this later, right? Because we can't get everything out of one conversation. This is, these are big things uh, coming out and surviving a sexual soldier are big things in our life. We want to give time and space for them to process what we told them and then come back with questions as needed and know that this can be an ongoing conversation so that we can come back to our parents or our friends and say, I remember when I was telling you about the sexual soul in therapy today, we, we were talking about this part of it and it's just really hard. And I, I, I like honestly just blocked it out. Ugh. You know, we can have these other conversations. We can talk more about our process and what we're working on. It's all good. 
And before also, and I forgot to say this, before we go in to actually have these conversations, there are two things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to practice saying these bullet points and having this like pretend conversation in your head many, many times. So much so that if we do feel maxed out and our brain goes blank, beep, we can still get it, get through it and get across the, the bits of information that are important. That's, that's like so key to having this go well, because otherwise we can get off on a tangent. We can forget what it is we want to say. When, when we finally say that word like sexual assault or I'm gay and those words come across our lips, we can blank out. And so it's important that we've said it so many times out loud to ourselves, even if it's in our car or in our bedroom or to a mirror, we want to have role played it out a little bit and said it so many times that it just feels like nothing. It's like t- all that emotional charge that comes along with these words has kind of gone. So practicing is key. And then the second thing is making sure that we do this and make time for this conversation at a non-emotionally charged time, like Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate. Holidays are not a good time for that. Let's do it on an off day, a random Wednesday when nobody else is around and things are pretty mellow. That Those are the best times. We don't want to do it when people are already frazzled or if someone's already feeling maxed out. And that also, just as a caveat, because I'm sure many of you thought this, that doesn't mean if your mom says, oh, today's just busy, that we can't have a conversation that day. I'm just telling you when tons of people are around or there's like a party happening the next day or that day, that's not the time to, we don't want to just blurt it out randomly. We want to give it space and time. So doing it when, you know, tensions are low, anxieties are low, and things aren't as stressful. And that's really it. And again, going back to the like coming out to family members, the one thing that I know I've heard from many of you and even from my my friends who've come out is the hardest part is allowing them the time to think about it, process what we said and come back to us with hopefully acceptance and love and understanding. And if we're not at a place where we feel able to give them that time, then it might not be a good time to come out. We need to be in a place where however they react or respond to us, we we know that we will be okay. We cannot control how other people are going to interpret what we say and how like who we are and what we're trying to get across them. We can't control that, unfortunately. And so I want you all to make sure that before you feel the pressure to come out and make time to do all of this, that you're okay regardless of their response. So, you know, considering like worst case scenario, best case scenario, more most likely scenario, that can be kind of helpful in preparing us for that. And yeah, and I also think it's fine to tell them that you just don't want them to think of you or treat you differently, but you wanted them to know who you are. I think that that could be helpful and powerful and maybe help them be a little bit more considerate about how they respond. I think that that's okay to share as well. But I also understand the the want to have them like to have your mom know so that you feel like she really does know what's going on with you. And sometimes it can start to feel like we're lying to them. And so, yeah, just consider that and then do what's best for you. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie, why can't I be okay with the way I feel for my therapist? I told my therapist about imagining having her as my mother and really liking her. The fact she doesn't give me any kind of reaction makes me feel miserable and like what I feel is wrong, even if it shouldn't feel that way. I feel like I'm not allowed to have any kind of feelings towards her unless she has the same feelings. That's interesting. 
it's an interesting rule you have. Or I know um, that she tells me it's okay to feel the way I do. She's the first person I was able to tell about any kind of feelings that I have. So I'm longing for her telling me that she likes me even a little bit, which she doesn't say in words, but I know that she's always been there when I needed it. Even if I get anxious and pull back because of my avoidant personality disorder traits. Still, even if I know she's been there for me, I worry that she will just leave. This is very interesting and super, super common. Now, for those of you who don't know, Attachment to our therapist, hoping our therapist could be our best friend or be our mother or our father is very common because when we've grown up in a situation where we have either abusive parents or just emotionally neglectful parents, which is still abuse. I'm not saying it's not abuse. I'm just saying sometimes it's not such overt abuse where we don't maybe don't recognize that this has been taking place, but our parent just was not there for us emotionally. Like on paper, everything looks good. We had a roof over our head and we were fed and my mom took me to this nice school and paid a lot for me to get into college. All this shit, we can be like, it's all good. But what we really needed was for our mom to rub our back when we cried or our dad to comfort us when we fell down and hurt ourselves as a child. And we didn't get that. They're like, brush it off. Come on, let's go. Like just not emotionally available at all. And that can leave us wanting that. And when we get into therapy, ta-da, we have a consistent, caring adult or I mean, even if you're an adult, it's just an adult figure, right? Someone who listens to us, validates our experience, allows us to share really vulnerable things and holds the space for us, right? Allows it to just be there and know that it's okay. And guess what? It kind of ignites that feeling, that desire to have that. And this may not have happened to us before. Usually we've had things like this before, like where a teacher, we wished our teacher was our mom or a babysitter or a nanny or... um any number of people in our lives, but a coach, something like that, we can wish that they were our parent because they they paid more attention to us than our real parent. And when we have a therapist who does that, then we're like, I want you to be my mom because I never had one that was the, there for me the way you are. And we can try to stuff our therapist into that void, our emotional void where our real caregiver, mother, father, whoever should be. And it's not wrong because says what I feel is wrong. However, your therapist cannot do that for you. And I think I talked about this two or three weeks ago about how it's okay to throw a tantrum like a child. It's okay to discuss this attachment and the fact that you really want them to be that because the the attachment issue is really what needs to be healed. And we're going to have to do what you all hate. And I know you guys are like, don't say it, Katie, don't say it, but we're going to have to reparent. We're going to have to give ourselves good mother messages because it sounds like mom is the issue here because you're wanting to have your therapist as your mom because your mom probably wasn't there for you in the way that you needed or was potentially abusive. And so we have to talk about it with our therapist and we need to figure out what took place and we need to work to heal it. That could be writing letters to our younger self and allowing our younger self to write letters to adult us. That could be giving, saying things to ourselves like you're important. We need to show ourselves all the things that we wished our parent had showed us. I know people are like, this doesn't work and I don't want to do it. Having my therapist be my mother figure feels so much better. I get it and I hear you. However, there's a huge flaw in this plan because we cannot put our emotional wellness and healing in someone else's hands like that because guess what? Therapists aren't available 24-7. They're not our mother. They can't care for us 
all the time when we need to. When we get sick, your therapist isn't going to come by and give you soup and stuff. That's not appropriate. Also, therapists move offices, refer patients out, take leaves of absence when they have a child or if they get sick or they have a family emergency. Therapists are people and they have faults and they can't be there for you all the time. That's not how therapy works. And so if we put all of this, uh, I, I guess, responsibility, but I don't even really like that word. It's just like putting all of our eggs in that basket, right? We're saying the therapist is the one that can heal me and make me feel better. Then when they let us down, inevitably, because they're human, our recovery and our ability to keep ourselves regulated emotionally is going to go out the window. And we can have uh, suicidal thoughts, we can emotionally lash out, we can tell our therapist never want to see them again, and we can deteriorate. And so we don't want to do that. And that's why your therapist is not reacting to this. It's good information. And I'm glad that you've shared it. And I would encourage you to continue to talk about it. But I would also encourage you to let your therapist know, hey, I asked this therapist on YouTube, and she was talking about how this could be due to attachment and not having my mom be there for me in the way that I needed and that I needed to reparent. Do you know about that? Could we work on that? Because that's really where the therapy work begins. And there's nothing wrong with feeling the way you do. Again, it's very normal. It's it's kind of part of our healing process. And in a way, we kind of have to have this inkling and these indicators in order to even know that that's what we need to work on. So all of this is really helpful information in our therapeutic process. So don't feel bad about it. It's part of your healing and your recovery. And it's really important that you tell your therapist more about it so that you can work to heal that wound of childlike you and feel more full and like that hole no longer exists as we move forward and as you engage in other relationships. Because in my experience, as a therapist who has pretty strict boundaries with my patients, if I don't allow them to put place me in that hole, they can try to have friendships or other romantic relationships and try to shove them in that hole as well. And then it just leads us to being more upset and more hurt. And it's almost like we've re-victimized ourselves or re-wounded ourselves by doing that. And that's why it's important that we do it ourselves healthfully, slowly, by you know doing that inner child work, doing the reparenting. I have videos about both those things that you can look up just search on YouTube, Katie Morton, inner child or Katie Morton reparenting. Um, even I have a video about uh, the emotionally absent mother. You can look that up. All of those things can be really, really helpful because we have all the, all the tools and all the resources to fill that void. We just wish that someone else had done it, but it had to be our parent and our caregiver when we were growing up. And because that didn't happen now, the only person left that can do it is us. And I know people get really upset about that and it, it doesn't feel as good. And it's like, this isn't going to work. Trust me when I tell you it will. It's difficult and it takes time. This attachment issue didn't crop up overnight, so it won't go away in one day either. But trust me when I tell you that it'll be worth it and you will feel better and you will feel more regulated emotionally and not so kind of like my patients with BPD struggle with this a lot too. They'll feel like just on a roller coaster of emotion because if someone else just doesn't quite do what we thought what we want them to do, it can feel like a barb and it hurts us. And then we can feel overwhelmed with emotion. We can be angry. We can want to cry. We can just feel so many various emotions just because of such a small slight. But to us, it's perceived as this huge ordeal. And I want you all to not feel that emotionally vulnerable. I want you to know that you can have tools and 
more capability to manage life's upsets. And doing that inner child work and that reparenting will give you that resiliency so that when life shakes things up, we can hold firm knowing who we are and we can feel okay. And yeah, that's really it. And I'd also be very curious about your avoidant personality disorder traits, because I, I wonder, I'm suspicious, (laughs) I would say, sounds more like BPD to me than avoidant personality disorder. I'm not, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen you for, you know, like your therapist has. So I will defer to that and say that that probably is the right diagnosis. But I would just want to know a little bit more because I'm very curious. That doesn't sound to me like my patients who've had avoidant personality disorder. So that's all. Okay. That's my last little thought there. Question number six says, Hey there, Katie, how do we keep going towards a goal when we're seeing no encouraging feedback yet? It may or may not be quote unquote working, but we can't see it. It's so easy to quit at this point instead of keep going. This could happen in a multitude of areas in life, I suppose. So I hope this question can help others as well as myself. Lots of love. This is a great question. And I think when I was thinking about this, you know, when you're building a house, this is the analogy I'm going to use. So you know, sit down and buckle up. Here we go. When you're building a house, a lot of the important work on the house is the stuff that you don't see. And and maybe it's because Sean and I, Sean and I are house hunting. If you guys don't know, we're, you know, we're looking into Austin, Texas and other parts of, you know, the, air, the area outside of LA and trying to figure out where we should land and what would be good for us. So I've been looking at a ton of homes and the things that make a home look good aren't the things that are actually important and you're supposed to before you purchase a home, have a home inspector come that checks your foundation and the the electrical and wiring. You want to make sure that all your plumbing and pipes are up to date and up to code and good. And, you know, if you have a furnace, let's say, or air conditioning unit, you want to make sure all that stuff is new. The roof, I guess you could see the roof, but most of this stuff is not appealing to the eye. It's not things that we notice being improved. You know what we notice being improved? Oh, they have granite granite countertops and new cupboards or, oh, stainless steel appliances, right? Those are the flashy, nice things. And, but they're not the most important. And I'm, I'm saying this because this is kind of how therapy works. And I don't know exactly what this goal and seeing encouraging feedback is applying to, but in therapy work, a lot of what we do is that foundation, the plumbing, the insulation in the ceiling and the electrical. We're doing this deep underground work because we have to lay that out first in order to build from it, right? If we don't have a good foundation and we don't have um, our electrical and wiring and we can't put, you know, the the walls up and make it look pretty, I can't make that kitchen look a, a pretty green or blue color or something, right? I can't do all of the light fixtures if I don't have the wiring in properly. And so a lot of the therapy work is that behind the scenes thing that we don't notice right away. We aren't going to get that much encouraging feedback from other people in our lives because they might not see the benefit yet. It's almost like if I'm working on, because in my own therapy work, I've done a lot on like people pleasing and boundaries and everything. And that was like in I guess starting like in my mid twenties, all the way until I think I was about 30. It was almost right after Sean and I got married that I felt like I was much better at it. So all of that work, people didn't really notice people in my life when I would just say, Oh, no, I can't make it to that. But how about next week? Right? That seems super simple. People in my life were like, Yeah, okay, sure. I can do next Wednesday. How's that? And we just get together that time. That's not a big deal to them. That's a huge deal to me. That's some underground fucking foundation lane work for me. Because the fact that I could say no, 
and didn't double book myself to please everybody and leave myself high and dry. That seems like simple, but that's super difficult. Do you see what I mean? And so I think a lot of times we won't see encouraging feedback because the thing that we're doing isn't the granite countertops of this home. It's the foundation. It's the pipes. It's the electrical work. It's things that just are not easy to notice. And a lot of times the dysfunction like that I had or the cognitive distortions that we experience, no one else knows that that's going on. And when we act in a a completely normal way, but it just feels abnormal to us, other people aren't going to notice it. And so I just want to kind of lay that out because I think that that is a lot of the time why we don't get encouraging feedback. But this is the power of seeing a therapist and journaling. So how do we keep going? I would encourage you to keep journaling about these things, these small foundational moments and things that you're shifting and changing or working towards. Because when you look back, like if I looked back in my journal from the beginning of COVID, I would be shocked as to A, how much I've done as far as like productivity of work. I I don't even know how I did this whole year is just like flown by. But I'd be able to see that I was able to do that. I would also be able to see that like my relationships have deepened with certain friends and the way that I've been able to hold boundaries and assert myself has been really great. So I'd be able to look back and see how much I've grown and changed to today and it would shock me, right? But I can't have that perspective if I never wrote it down or I wasn't in therapy seeing my therapist to talk about a certain thing, right? Sometimes journaling, even if it's just little bullet points about the things you're working on, that's why I tell people like two things you're grateful for, two things that you're looking forward to, and two things you're working on. That's an easy thing to do each and every day. I would encourage you to make that time because that's how we keep motivated. If we look back even a month ago, we can be like, oh my God, wow, it has gotten better. It can give us perspective. It can help us see all the things that we've done, all the the little steps that we've made towards our goal. And that can help keep us encouraged and motivated. And that's really, and therapy does the same because I have notes on my patients. And I do that periodically when I feel like my patients are losing hope or are feeling discouraged because they had another depressive episode or relapsed in their self-injury urges or eating disorder behaviors. I'll go back and be like, remember this? And then I'll read a little bit from it. They're like, yeah, like that was only three months ago. So when you tell me you haven't made any progress, I'm going to call your bullshit right there because that was only three months ago. And sometimes we need that kind of like slap in the face. Remember, you're doing great. And so I think that, yeah, that's why journaling is really important. And I, and that's also why a lot of the work in therapy is is that foundation and is, is the wiring and it just doesn't look as pretty and we might not notice I hope they just helped give you some perspective because that's honestly how I help keep my patients motivated. And I also help keep myself motivated because it might not look like much from the outside, but I know deep down that I'm getting better, that I'm a healthier person to be in a relationship with. And that makes me feel good. And so it's sometimes just recognizing that. Okay. A little more water. Let's get into question number seven. And that says, Hey, Katie, how do I ask for help? I've been really struggling lately and I haven't told anyone about it. I want to ask for help, but every time I try, the anxiety is too overwhelming. I love this question. And my answer is going to be a little bit similar to number four, where we talked about like coming out or talking about sexual assault. I think that was question number four. Yes. Look at that. Look at that brain. It remembers. Um, First of all, again, step number one is figuring out what we need to say. 
What is it that we need to get across? Are we, do we need to, uh, is this reaching out for help because we're an adult and we can do it all on our own? Or is this telling a, a parent or a loved one because we need their support in order to get the help? That's the first thing that we kind of have to recognize. What is it? Who is it that we need to reach out to first? And what would be the most effective for us? It's okay to think about it. It's okay to journal about it. Consider it. And then what do we need them to know? Okay, if it's a therapist, what we need them to know is our symptoms. You can honestly just write them down. And when you call to make an appointment, usually you're leaving a message. We want to tell them our name and our age, some of our symptoms and days and times that we're available and insurance if we're hoping to use that and ask for their price. That's really important. So write those things down and then just read from, you can write it down like it's a conversation and just read from it when you call in. So that's one way. Then if it's asking for help from someone that we care about and someone that we love, it's kind of like back to number four, where we figure out what it is they need to know. We keep it short and sweet. Remember, a maximum of five little bullet points. And the fifth one should be what we need from them. Like, I'm going to need you to take me to therapy, or I'm going to need you to help me pay for therapy, or I'm going to need you to check in on me because I'm having a hard time, right? So we need to practice that. So write it out. Say it over and over and over until it has no emotional charge so we could say it in our sleep and we've role played it. What if the therapist, when we call to make an appointment, picks up? Can we read from our thing? Make prep, prepare for that. Maybe have two notes, one for a message, one for a conversation so that we can just read. I know the anxiety gets overwhelming. And then make a time to do it. Make sure it's, you know, we are kind of calmed down. And because of this question talks about anxiety getting so overwhelming, there's going to be another step in here where we have to figure out what soothes our system or are there times of day where we don't feel so anxious? Consider that. Does a nice warm bath make us feel good? Does uh, journaling or coloring or talking to a friend or watching a funny movie or putting on music and dancing it out? What helps us calm down? What helps us feel better? When do we feel our calmest? And I don't want you to say when I'm in the I'm completely asleep because that doesn't work. We can't do anything during that time. So consider those times of day or if there's certain situations that you find really pleasing and calming. And that gives us, that helps us do those things more as we lead up to that conversation or calling to make that appointment. And again, the writing it down and reading from it, if your anxiety gets too overwhelming, we can just continue reading because we've read it through so many times. We've practiced this over and over. We could pretty much do it in our sleep, but we can't, right? That's not, that's not a helpful. <laughs> if you just say, well, that's when I'm calm. That doesn't really help us here. And yeah, I mean, it's always nerve wracking. It's always scary, but I tr- trust me. Wow. I really fumbled over my words there. Trust me when I tell you that it's always way scarier in our head than it is in practice. We're going to pick someone, like you said, you haven't told anyone about it. If you're reaching out to a therapist, it's what we do for a living. We're going to be nice and kind and understanding. That's just what we do. If it's a friend or family member, a loved one, they already care about you. Of course, they're going to care that you're having a tough time. And you'd probably be surprised many of them might already know. They might already say, yeah, I've noticed something was up, but I just didn't, I didn't, you know, want to ask because it's personal. I wasn't sure maybe you weren't okay talking about it, right? We're going to get a good response. We just have to prepare ourselves ahead of time. If we just go in without any preparation, we can become overwhelmed. We could even have a panic attack or feel too anxious, forget what we were saying, get completely off track and feel, you know, even worse about the situation. So just plan ahead, prepare and set yourself up for success. 
Okay, question number eight says, Hi, Katie, any tips on how to become less body focused and more body positive? My eating disorder and low self esteem, low self esteemed mind cannot follow the progress my body made during my intuitive eating journey that I started in January of this year. To this day, I've become calmer around food and stopped hoarding it as much since binging purging cycles. But I'm having a hard time with my body image because I've gained X number of kilograms since January and it shows. I'm very split between continuing my intuitive eating and starting dieting again. Oh, eating disorder voices back because my mind cannot keep up with the changes in my body, even though they're almost all positive. Man, this is very common. And trust me when I tell you that this is, in my experience, other than the initial part of eating disorder recovery, because that first month is usually pretty rough for most of my patients. This is the second hardest part and like kind of that last hurdle into recovery land. And the truth is, stop weighing yourself. That's my first tip. When just riddle me this, you guys, when the fuck do we need to know how much we weigh? I'll wait. Because we never fucking do. Are you going bungee jumping? That's the only time we need to know how much we weigh. Stop weighing yourself. It's it might as well, I'd rather just roll in tar and some broken glass instead. How about you? Feels pretty great. Just as good as weighing myself. Also just as necessary. There's no need for us to know our weight. If a doctor asks about it, they weigh us. They weigh us at the hospital. They weigh us when we go in for our physicals or when I go, when I go see my OBGYN, any of my appointments, they weigh me. I don't need to do it. I don't know why people think they need to weigh themselves. I feel like it's just a way to self-injure. So stop weighing yourself, first of all. Second of all, I'm super fucking proud of you for doing your intuitive eating. And if anybody doesn't know, I'm a huge advocate for the intuitive eating workbook. I like the original. I know they've made a bunch of different versions. And I think it's just a way to make more money. And I, I'm fine with that. They're they're great at what they do. But the intuitive eating workbook is wonderful. And I highly recommend it. It really just tries to get us to eat when we're hungry and stop when we're full and listen to our bodies. There's no judgment around food. There's no good or bad foods. It's all just food, which is wonderful. And I'm so glad that you're feeling less anxious and, you know, around food and just less bad about food. I forget the word that you use, but, um, calmer around food. That's what it was and stopped hoarding it, which is wonderful. So those are all great things. Eating, eating disorders are, sneaky motherfuckers. I've said that so many times over these years. They're chameleons and they try to find ways to sneak in and take up shop again. It's a, it's a like tough to kill off this coping skill, but we have to use other things that have worked because there's a reason you've gotten as far as you have. And I would encourage you to pay attention to the things that you used to use to get you through these tough times. And I want you to implement those again. I know you have them could be journaling, could be impulse logs. I would encourage anybody looking to create an impulse log, if you don't have them, go to safealternatives.com forward slash, and then I think it's on their website, you can just search impulse logs, or you can Google safe alternatives impulse logs. They have a video on their website showing you how to put it together and explaining how it works. And I I think it's just a great tool. I think that everyone should be using them if we're struggling with any kind of impulses, any kind of urges to sabotage, anything like that. Um, Theirs is definitely focused on like self-injury and eating disorder stuff, but I think it works for all sorts of things. So check that out. I would use those, but using the tools that got you as far as you are now, it's not like we can just stop using them all of a sudden because we're having a tough time. Sorry, my nose itches. We're having a tough time right now and we're feeling very triggered. And so I want you to use those same 
tools and resources to continue to help you feel better, right? We want to keep moving in a positive direction. So use that and recognize this urge to diet as what it like, recognize it for what it is. It's an eating disorder. I don't know if you guys remember back, I did a video with Lindsay Sterling, it was probably a few years ago now, but she talks about how her eating disorder would try to creep in in different ways over the years. And she'd be like, it's like it put on a new dress and a different wig, but I'm like, I recognize you, you look different, but you're still my eating disorder. And I loved that visualization because it's like, yeah, okay, so you used to be a brunette, but now you're a redhead and you used to be wearing this like mini dress and now you're wearing like a long maxi, but I know who the fuck you are. Get out of here. And she was like, that was, I would just look at it and be like, you don't, you don't need to be here anymore. She's like, I recognize those thoughts. I know where they're coming from and that's where it's coming from. And that's exactly where your thoughts are coming from. And I do not, and this is kind of my final thoughts about this is I think dieting is bullshit. I even I don't even like the term dieting. I think even as we say dieting, there's certain foods that we already imagine disappearing, like things that I would want to eat. I just I can't eat them anymore. And that inability to eat things that we crave just makes us want to crave it more. And that's how we get caught in that binge restrict cycle. A lot of you, I just asked on my Instagram this week about eating disorder questions. And so many of you had questions about binging and restricting and getting caught in that cycle. And I have an older video about it. I probably will make a new one just because maybe people don't know that video exists and I want to make sure it's refreshed and people know about it. But you can look it up and watch it. It just, the dieting just gets us caught in that because then we're not eating enough and we're feeling hungry because we're not being intuitive. We're not listening to our body. We're not satiated. So then we feel restrict, 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 because that's what we're feeling. And then boom, we binge again. Then there's this guilt around it. And then we go back into restricting. It's just, we just get caught up, boop, 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 and go around and around. So instead of dieting, I would encourage you to tell your eating disorder to go fuck itself because it doesn't know what it's talking about. It's just trying to find another way in. And instead, I would try to get you to recognize all these things. Like you said, that it's almost all positive. I would argue that it is all positive. Your eating disorder is just telling you that something's not positive because our bodies figure out what weight they kind of want to be at. And they, they balance, you know, they can move around quite a bit month to month, but they kind of stay in this little range and they just kind of float around where they're supposed to be. They do it on their own. We don't have to control it. There's not a certain weight that we should or shouldn't be at. The only reason you should ever be concerned about your weight or anything like that is if you talk to a doctor and they're like, hey, you should gain or lose this because of this reason with your body. Listen to your physicians. Listen to people in the medical community. However, when it comes to eating disorders, you can tell your eating disorder to shut the fuck up because it is not a doctor. It didn't go to medical school. It doesn't know what it's talking about. And so we have to change that conversation and focus on all the things that are positive, write love letters to our bodies, be grateful for the fact that we can breathe and we can see. And I'm grateful that my brain is allowing me to focus so I can do this podcast for you, right? Just recognize all that it does recognize all the things that like, I'll even think about my body because I've injured myself over the years doing different uh, snowboarding or mountain biking, or even doing yoga. One time I tweaked my shoulder and it'll ache sometimes. And I'm like, thanks body for like working to heal that and make it so that I can still I can still do things. And I would encourage you to do the same. Recognize all the things that your body's doing for you and all the ways that it has been abused by you, but has been resilient because we've all done things to our body, right? I hurt my shoulder and I pushed it too hard and whatever, but it still allows me to do what I do. And I'm grateful for that. And I thank my body for that. And so changing that conversation that you have with yourself and your body into a more positive, loving and supportive place is really key 
to overcoming this last hurdle of recovery. But also, I just want you to know, I'm super proud of how far you've come. This is amazing. And you tell that eating disorder to go fuck itself because it has no room. We have no room left in our life for this kind of talk and that kind of diet culture thinking uh, our body has to squeeze into a certain look because that's what society tells us we should look like. We're all very different and everyone should be celebrated for their differences. We don't all have to look and weigh the same. That's bullshit. Okay. I could really talk about that forever, but I have to move on because <laughs> I'll just get off. You think I've gotten on tangents already? Whew, that one I can just go on. Okay. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, all of my therapy sessions at the beginning are silent. Oh, I know that I have to start talking about whatever I want, but the problem is that I don't know what to say. What is, or what is my problem at this moment? Everything seems unimportant, small and silly, and I should be able to deal with it. That sounds like a lot of judgment you got there for yourself. My therapist does not start talking despite knowing that I struggle with this, probably challenging you. I have high functioning, quiet BPD. About half of my last session was silent. So after that, I wrote him an email saying that due to COVID and stuff, I think we should stop our sessions for now. Uh-oh. He made me angry for not even trying to help me find something to talk about. I don't know how to overcome this. I love what you do from Poland. Oh, and they said, if I have time, please share that Pol what the Polish government did regarding abortion laws and how women in Poland are protesting against it. Against it. It's absolutely disgraceful that I'm, and I'm ashamed of what is happening in my country for the last few years. I'm so sorry you guys are going through that. Um, okay. This question, I don't mean to laugh about this because I know it's very serious for you, but the, it's just funny because I've had this happen in my own practice many times and the, okay. So a couple of things, first of all, your therapist is trying to challenge you, which is good. But I think at this point, your therapist is challenging a little too much. They're pushing you a little too fast. They should let you maybe be silent for five minutes and then they'll, they'll prompt by something then wait and then prompt. And I would encourage you to, first of all, email your therapist back and say, I'm so sorry that I said I wanted to cancel I'm upset because you didn't help me and most of our sessions have been silent and I don't know how to deal with this. I would prefer if every five minutes or so you could prompt me with a question until I get better at starting the conversation. I do want to work on this, but I need a little more support. Sincerely, me, right? That's what I would write because that email is really, first of all, you're lying to your therapist and you're being passive aggressive. And I understand it's part of that quiet BPD, man. He really poked you. And now you're like, well, fuck you. I'm not coming in. And we're what ends up happening is you're sabotaging yourself because that doesn't actually hurt your therapist. That only hurts you. And so we're going to, you're going to have to rise to the occasion here. I want you to email back and I want you to say that because what really needs to be said is that I need a little bit more support. And what I would challenge you to do, then here's like my advice on the talking and therapy part is leave your judgment at home. I know that's hard, easier said than done, but you're already invalidating yourself immediately. Everything seems unimportant, small and silly, and I should be able to deal with it. Well, who says, where are your facts? Who are you way? Like, what's this, this thing that you're apparently like measuring your stuff up to, and you're saying it doesn't measure up to, because clearly the things are not unimportant, small or silly because they're affecting you. And that is all that has to ha It just has to affect us. We have to not like how we feel because of something for it to be important enough in therapy. Also, I can't tell you how many times my parent or my, my parents, Jesus, my patients bring up things that have happened with them and they think they're like 
little or not a big deal. And they kind of gloss over it. And I'm like, wait, hold on. Tell me about that again. And that's a huge deal to me. And what I see with their whole system of how their family works or how how their parents have treated them or, you know, it can be really helpful information. So just because you think it's small and silly or unimportant doesn't mean that it's going to be to your therapist. Also doesn't mean that that's actually the truth. It sounds like a lot of judgment and a lot of what I would call cognitive distortions, meaning that we just can't see something for what it is because we're we're minimizing it or we think in like black and white thinking or whatever. So we have some kind of filter on and we're not able to see it. And so my challenge is in at the beginning of the session, just remember, be like Katie would say, maybe it's unimportant, but it might not be. Let's say it anyways. Okay. We have to fight back. And part of that could be also, you know, recognizing the conversation that you're having with yourself and trying to move it into a more positive direction. So that if the conversation is like, I'm so stupid, this is not that big of a deal. I don't know why you're having such such tough time with this. We have to stop those thoughts and challenge them with it's possible that this thing I think I'm overreacting to, maybe maybe it is something that's important to talk about. I'm open to the idea that maybe my therapist would want to know about it. Or it's possible that it's a bigger deal than I realize. Maybe. Possibly, right? We use those bridge statements, we move it back over. But please, please email your therapist back. Acknowledge that what you did was passive aggressive. And it was because you were upset. Because they didn't help you and they let you be silent for so long. Again, it's kind of like what I was talking about in question number four. And I think question number seven is like, communicating is key and we need to practice that and we need to do those little bullet points of what we need to get across to them and what do we need from them and the need from your therapist is to have him kind of help you spark conversations while you try really try challenge yourself to share these unimportant silly and small things because they're not really unimportant silly or small they're important because they affect you and it's part of your bpd that's like telling you that you're overreacting but you're not all of that information is helpful. We need to know what is affecting us so that we can better cope and better get better skills to manage it, right? So yeah, those are my thoughts. I'm sorry you're going through this. I didn't mean to laugh. It's just like my patients do this all the time where they like, they'll, t- they'll be quiet and they'll expect me to do all the work. And in therapy, there's this kind of balance about like therapists can only work as hard as their patients. So while I'm going to show up and I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to push for you to try to talk about things more or you know, uh, open up a little bit more about this or be able to pull yourself out of dissociation because we, we've worked on the tools and I know you can do it. I'm going to challenge you a little bit and you're going to have to meet me there, right? Like I've armed you with all these tools and stuff and now I'm going to want you to try to use them. It sounds like your therapist is doing that, but it may just be a little bit too fast. And so you just need to let him know it's pushing me a little bit too fast. I need some support can we not have silence for more than five or 10 minutes? Cause I, it starts to, I start to get frustrated with myself and then mad at you. It's okay to communicate that there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I think he's, he has the best of intentions. We just need to communicate that it's not working for us in this way. Okay. And keep us posted. I know it's hard and it's very common, but through communication, we can move past it. Final question. Question number 10 says, Hi, Katie. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am. How do I let go of my past self? I've been trying to move past my depressed and traumatized self, but I can't seem to let it go. I'm attached to it and I want to hold um, hold on to it. As a result, I don't feel like myself when I'm not depressed. Interesting. 
which means that when things are going okay, I start sabotaging myself so that I become depressed again. For example, I left a very good university that I tried really hard to get into, and I just keep bringing myself in this way. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yes. Okay, so there is something that happens when we've been depressed or anxious or anything for a long period of time. That feeling, depression, anxiety, whatever, becomes our norm, becomes what we're used to. This is me. This is how I always feel. That becomes our baseline. Therefore, when we start to feel good, it's kind of uncomfortable. We're like, wait a minute, this isn't right. And it just ugh, doesn't feel right. And we don't want it. And so we can prefer to be in that norm. So that's one kind of reason that we could do this. Another is, and something that I've been learning from my friend Alexa, who's a trauma specialist, she was talking about how telling people who are traumatized, and I'll relate this really quickly, hopefully this makes sense, but she's talking about when people are traumatized and we tell them to, to create a safe place, if you're just listening, I'm doing air quotes, safe place, that that in and of itself can be triggering and impossible because to feel safe means to be vulnerable and we don't want to do that, right? Because last time we were vulnerable, maybe we were abused or harmed in some way. So instead of safe, we look for kind of neutral. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because it sounds like when you start to feel good, that makes us feel really vulnerable and scared. What if something bad happens again? We can start to worry the what ifs and the potential new trauma that could be just around the corner so much so we can't enjoy the good and therefore we self-sabotage to pull ourselves back into our more comfortable, more relatable space, which is depressed, sad, traumatized, right? Okay, I know how bad this feels and I'm comfortable with this bad feeling, feeling good and then maybe having something else happen. I don't know. The unknown can feel scarier than the known. And so that can be why this is happening. And what I would encourage you to do and this might sound weird, but what I would encourage you to do is just recognize what it's like to feel good. I want you to journal a little bit about what it was like when you started feeling really good and things were going well. Like when you were at university and things were good, I want you to write about that. What was that like? What did it feel like? How was a, a, a day in the life? And then I want you to write about a day in the life of you feeling depressed and traumatized. What's that like? How does that feel? How do you experience the world when you're in that state? And then I want you to compare the two and I want you to figure out why you want the one that you want. Is it that you want to be depressed and traumatized? Maybe. Most likely it is that you want to feel better and you want to have a good experience. We just aren't sure how to live in that. So that, that sounds silly. To, but it's your first step because I want you to at least be able to recognize the difference between the two and why we actually want the one thing that we're not allowing ourselves to, to get, okay? So that's kind of important as part of our just process as a whole. And then the second thing and something that I worked on in my own therapy way back right before I met Sean was being okay with being comfortable because sometimes being comfortable is a, is a bad thing. Like I had a slew of boyfriends when I was a teenager who were super disrespectful, not available, and one even cheated on me. And I kind of went through these relationships. And my therapist was like, you see you're in this pattern and you just keep jumping from one relationship that's shitty to another one that's shitty. And then you complain about it and then you dump them because you're like, I don't know why 
I'm with this shitty person. What if instead we take a break and we figure out what it is you want in a relationship? So that's kind of that, like we're looking for the thing, right? We have the, the, the depressed traumatized. So for me, I had this shitty relationships and then I had like maybe what a good relationship could be because I did have one good relationship and I just dumped him right away. Cause I was like, that's uncomfortable. What the fuck is that? I don't know. And so recognizing those two things, and figuring out that I actually did want that good relationship, like you do want to actually feel like things are going okay and good and you feel good. Then she was like, okay, well, what are the traits of that? So that's why it's being curious is good, right? Okay. So when I'm starting to feel good, what does, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What What's my daily experience like? And then how can I recognize when I'm in that state? And how can I remind myself that I actually do want that? How can I sit with the discomfort until it becomes comfort comfortable, because sometimes we can't sit in it long enough. We just jump right back out like what I was doing. I'd date a guy for like two weeks and, you know, I'd be like, oh, he's so nice and so predictable and so conscientious. And I'd be like, Ugh, that sounds terrible. And I would dump him, end up in another unhealthy one. And I'd be like, this is so great. And she was like, why do you keep doing that? So we have to put ourselves in a position to be comfortable. So I want you to recognize this, recognize the traits. And then when things are going okay, we have to find ways to sit with it and soothe our system. So then comes in resources. So we're going to have to find ways to talk ourselves down from the sabotaging behavior. We're going to have to do impulse logs. Again, go to that safe alternatives, impulse logs, Google that and find them. It's great. And we're going to have to distract so that we don't act out. And I know it sounds like it's a lot of work. First of all, trust me, I did it. It's uncomfortable. But it does get better. And it actually doesn't last for that long. The discomfort only lasts. I mean, when I was like, is this dating? So it was maybe like a month and then it was gone. So I don't know how long it'll be for you, but I can guarantee you it's not going to be forever. It'll be short lived. And then that discomfort will become comfortable and we'll switch over from wanting to sabotage into, ah, it's okay for things to be okay. It's okay for me to feel this way. And some of it will also be processing the trauma because that, again, that vulnerability component, when I was talking about what Alexa had said, I think that vulnerability component is important to address, but that's work that you have to do in therapy and have to help yourself process through what happened so that you feel okay being okay, because often we're not even used to that either. But again, I hope that, that kind of gives you a place to start and know that it will get better. And the biggest part is just recognizing that we're doing it, which you're already you already have that and that is huge. So five gold stars for you. And then just kind of working your way out so you can be uncomfortable and you can sit with it and you can be okay. Okay. And it's funny when I was saying that you guys, the word comfortable, I used to always say comfortable, which I did in this podcast just now. And it caught me off guard because I got teased in college when I came to college, like, why do you say comfortable so oddly? And I was like, but that's how it's spelled. That's how you say it. And I've slowly tried to weed it out, but it popped in a little bit. And so that's just, that's one of the weird quirks of me. I used to say comfortable. Now I say comfortable because that's what people are comfortable with. <laughs> I'll be here all night, folks. I'm just kidding. But anyways, um, that's why I said it like that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope some of these answers were helpful. These are great, great questions. And I, I'm sure that those of you who asked them helped more than just yourself. So thank you for sending in your questions. If you're wondering where I get the questions, I get them on my opinion, opinions that don't matter YouTube page in the community tab. I ask for them on Mondays, although this, um, 
this podcast I recorded a little bit earlier. So next Monday after this will be when I ask for them again, um, because Sean and I are out of town. When this goes live, I'll be still be in Austin, Texas looking for houses. So yay. Um, but anyways, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you. For, and please share, please share this podcast. I'd like to get this podcast um, out to more people because you again, you never know who it's going to help. It can be a wonderful resource and a way for people just to listen and learn along with us as a community. And I think that's really great. Leave uh, your reviews. I've read your reviews. Thank you so much for all of you who left such kind and thoughtful reviews. That really makes my day. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I will see you next week. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.